FYI, and I don't mean fake news, this podcast contains huge spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast that goes snicked. Snicked. I'm your host, Jason. Memories. Early 90s memories. Venable, and that's right, you guessed it, it's a flashback episode. Um, it's kind of me, uh, uh, catch-all episode. Kind of some stories that don't really fit into any of the other episodes I have planned, so I'm throwing them all together. Um, came out kind of over the first few years of the 90s, uh, 90, 91, 92, um, but they're all either, like, flashbacks or, like, kind of, uh, bonus tracks, <laughs> like, like, unreleased gems, um, stuff like that, um, that kind of play into this so um and also have a, a really nice surprise for you listeners um especially for fans of of the john wilson podcasting empire um have a little little surprise for you coming up here in a bit but um but yeah anyway um first up we're going to talk about wolverine number 34 which you will see in a minute also kind of plays into the the memories theme of the episode um so not only is it kind of a standalone at least in the sense that it's not part of a particular story arc like it's not like a multi-issue arc um so it's got that going for it that's kind of fits in the odds and ends but also um introduces some concepts or at the very least embellishes some concepts that will be kind of the linchpin of of larry hammond's run so we're going to start there. Wolverine number 34 is The Hunter in Darkness. Written by Larry Hama. Art by Mark Silvestri. Inks by Dan Green. Letters by Pat Brousseau. Colors by Glennis Oliver. And our cover is by Silvestri and Green. Um, it's a pretty good cover. It has like some kind of werewolf creature tackling Wolverine off of a cliff um, with the expression a devil in the dark um, really it's actually a pretty great cover there's two things that are a little kind of iffy one um, sometimes Sylvester gives Wolverine bird legs and it's kind of not something he does all the time but it's something he does sometimes and they're pretty bad on this cover um, and he's got like bird like snake tongue feet kind of um the other thing that's not really it's really my fault just the way the cover because it's kind of upside down right um at first i thought wolverine had like a big hand <laughs> on his right side but it's really the werewolf creature reaching around him so um so yeah but i mean it's overall a great cover with a couple of nitpicky things i was like oh i wish he would have maybe taken a little more time on that but um so, here's what we got. We got Naked Wolverine goes to northern Canada in the woods to eat fish and try and jog his memory from when he was found feral by the Hudsons. 
The Mounties find him and question him about an escaped convict, Ike. A real mean son of a gun. Uh, Wooming smells Ike and agrees to help the Mounties track him. But the Mounties are also worried about the hunter in darkness. A terrible beast who can't be killed. Ike has a girl hostage and sees the Mounties tracking him. He shoots the driver causing the jeep to wreck. Wolvie saves Mountain Doolin. Ike thinks he has the advantage as night falls, but of course, Wolvie gets serious and gets in costume. A werewolf-type creature attacks Wolverine. While Wolvie tries to find, tries to hold his own, Ike shoots Doolin. Speaking of memories, Doolin remembers Wolvie saving him in World War II Normandy, and the beastie remembers a wild, feral wolfie freeing him from a bear trap years ago. Dewan puts two and two together that he shot Wolverine years ago, tracking the beastie. Wolfie saves the girl as the beastie eats Ike. Dewan also connects Wolfie to the World War II Corporal and says Logan in his dying breath, confounding Wolverine. So, some pretty cool stuff here. Um... First of all, right off the bat, I mean, this is this is Hammer's second story, right? If you count his first little arc, that's kind of the first story. Um, and even if you don't, I mean, it's just a few issues in, and he's introducing the idea of Wolverine missing his memories. Like the whole setup of this story is Wolverine trying to fill in the gaps in his mind um, by going to places that he know knows where he's been, and he goes back to like. What is inferred, it's not outright stated, but inferred is like one of his earliest memories, which is when the Hudsons found him, you know, naked and running around the, the snowy forest, um, which we know where that will come into play uh, right after Weapon X, but, you know, here Wolverine goes back to that spot to see if he can find any clues, if anything, like, makes him remember things, and um, it's a really interesting concept and an important concept because Hammer builds on this, like, throughout his entire run, um, just over and over and over again, returns to this concept, and this is where it kind of really takes hold and is introduced, um, you know, parts of his past have always been mysterious to the reader, right, but now we found out that all of that, that we kind of maybe didn't know, he also doesn't know that his past and his memories are a mystery to him as well. And that's a little bit different spin. I mean, I think um, previous writers, especially Claremont, had given us little pieces of backstory here and there and kind of started to build like a mythology and a history. And a lot of that was left open-ended, I think. Probably so Claremont could go back in and, or other writer, uh, fill it in later. Um... But I, it was never really, really stated that, like, Wolverine didn't know what was going on. But now that's definitely made concrete, that, that Wolverine is, is missing big chunks of his memory. Um, and, you know, is starting on a journey to try to recover those. And so that's, that's pretty rad. Um, pretty big part of Wolverine's character that is solidified here in issue 34. Um... I like in the story that they set up Wolverine to be the beast. Like, we see kind of a silhouette, and we see in the flashback when the hunter is hunting the beast, 
where he obviously shoots someone that looks like Logan, a feral Logan running through the woods. You know, we see silhouette and shadow, but it has his body type, his hair. Um, and come to find out that was him, but it was separate from the beast, we find out later, but they really set up the story as maybe he was the beast, uh, which is interesting kind of kind of turn that the story takes. Um, there's also a part where we get the classic I'm the best there is at what I do line, but it's after the mount he's picking up and he's just laying in the back seat of the Jeep, just lounging. He's like, yep, I'm the best there is at what I do, which is uh, bumming rides. <laughs> Anyway, I thought that was really funny. Um, Ike is just gross. This criminal guy that escapes is just disgusting. Makes lots of um, inappropriate comments about his young female hostage. Um, Say young. She's supposed to be like an older teenager. I'm guessing like 15, 16. Um, And yeah, he's just... He's like, oh, you're going to keep me warm and, and all kinds of gross stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, not not pleasant. Um, there's not really a whole lot outside of the plot that goes on. There's some really kind of fun moments. Um, we get a lot of the flashbacks of great art. Um, you know, as Wolverine and the Beast and the Mounties run through the woods and, and we see kind of the histories and stuff. Um, there's a part where Ike calls... Um, that little short fella into sissy tights. Which <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. Um, maybe the one cool thing he says. <laughs> besides all the gross dripping out of his mouth. Um, that was fun. And then there's a really, really awesome last page of, of the, Lo- the Mountie with the flashlight kind of on him, laying in the snow as Logan Wolverine approaches with the girl he rescued and finds him dead. He's like, how did he know my name? It's a really, really cool last page and, and definitely sets up like, okay, there's a lot going on here. Um, so that's really, really cool. Um, the art is fantastic. It's great. I mean, it's Sylvesterian green firing on all cylinders doing their thing with all of our colors. I mean, it's a great looking book uh, about what you would expect, right? Um, the story is pretty interesting. There's some really nice kind of turns in the story and some some fun irony. Um, yeah, overall, I mean, it's kind of hard to get past the, the memory thing, but, I mean, we see some memories, right? We get some early storytelling of when he was first running around the forest um, and apparently saving wild monsters <laughs> from bear traps. And, you know, he gets the World War II flashback of him saving some of his Canadian uh, military buddies. Uh, you know, that whole, that whole flashback is him, like, just going wild and taking on just a massive group of soldiers. Um, so it's pretty interesting. And we don't obviously, at this point, don't have any of the retcon or, like, bone claws or anything. So we don't see any of that. But we just see him go nuts and take a lot of punishment but still come out Victorious, so that's that's some pretty cool flashback as well. Um, yeah, man, overall great story. I will very easily give Wolverine number thirty-four five out of six claws. So, um, next on the docket we have Reign of Terror, <laughs> double pun, um, which was a graphic novel that features question mark Wolverine like his he gets top billing like it's Wolverine Reign of Terra um I don't 
really know if it's that. I mean, he's in it a lot, but he's not that central. I, well, maybe he is. I don't know. Um, anyway, we have the, the double pod because instead of Reign of Terror, like R-E-I-G-N of Terror, um, we have Reign of Terra. Uh, Reign being Wolf's Bane, Reign Sinclair, and Terra being uh, the name of this fantasy land that the story takes place in. Also, Terra, obviously, um, a root word for, for some of the words we have for Earth, like territory, terraforming, stuff like that. So, um, so all kinds of clever pun stuff going on here. Um, you know, this is written by Peter David, uh, art by Andy Kubert, and my iPhone is stalling here in just a second. I will get the rest of those credits. But uh, Peter David, Andy Kubert, for sure. Um, the colorist is Sherilyn Van Valkenburg. And the letterer is Jim Novak. And we have kind of a wraparound cover by Andy Kubert that's pretty great, um, really. Um, we have Wolverine kind of le leaning over like some kind of medieval knight. And with a castle in the background. And on the back we have the New Mutants. And... Um, the story is pretty much a story of the New Mutants. We start off with Wolf's Bane inexplicably, inexplicably kind of being insane. And so they kind of locked her in a room because that's what you do with insane people, right? Um, so Cable has her locked up and, uh, and her powers aren't working. She keeps saying she's not Wolf's Bane. She's not the rain they know. Um, and they're going to try to figure it out. Um, and it turns out that, that she's right, that there's this other land, Terra, where it's an evil Magneto-looking guy who's pretty much Magneto, and he is trying to, to bypass this prophecy that the king's daughter is going to meet the beast and, and kind of overthrow him or in this magical realm or whatever. So he had found some interdimensional spell and had basically exchanged the king's daughter, Rain, for our Rain, uh, Wolfsbane. Um, little knowing that she would be the beast herself. But he also finds the beast, but he doesn't change it. Um, but he pulls in Wolverine somehow to this land as well. And we have a guy named the Mage, who's pretty much our, our Cable character. Um, anyway, there's a whole lot of running around um, as Wolverine is being controlled by the Magneto Wizard guy. Um, oh, Gandalf. <laughs> um, being controlled by the, the Magic Wizard guy and being forced to try to kill the daughter and he, he takes multiple attempts. Of course, all the new mutant characters are also in the service of the king, you know, royal guards, whatnot. Um, but anyway, at the end, Wolverine kind of is able to break free. Uh, Wolf's Bane turns into Wolf's Bane. She's not just a human, she's a mutant. Um, so we have two beasts now, Wolverine Beast and Wolfsbane Beast, and they kind of kind of find it out for a second. Anyway, they end up kind of figuring out uh, the mage, Cable, fights Magneto, and kind of everything kind of goes back to how like, people switch back and forth to where they go. Um, so the daughter comes back home and is like, okay, well, I'm going to fix all this. And, of course, Rain comes back to our universe and is like, see... That lady wasn't crazy, and really wasn't me. This is me. 
<laughs> I'm here. And um and they're all talking and so then Cable is like, Alright, well I guess we'll go back to doing new mutant stuff. And so the new mutants uh run off to the side and they're talking. Um and kind of key note, um uh, by the next flashback episode, Cable's not in the scene at this time and uh Logan shows up and kinda is like, Hey, Hey guys, <laughs> uh, let's all be careful, right? Or something like that. Um, let's see, let's get to the end of this thing. Um, this is a big, like, 70-something pages, uh, or 60-something pages. But yeah, he basically uh, says, you know... Oh, I know, he brings, like, a belt buckle, like a lion werewolf-looking belt buckle back to Wolf's Bane. And like, all right, see you guys around. I'm going to stand over here in the shadows and smoke like a creeper. <laughs> anyway, I, um, you may be able to tell I did not love this story. Now, the art is fantastic. Hubert nails Wolverine, and he does really good at, like, kind of medieval folk tale type art, which, you know, funny enough, in, in way in the future, will play in to the great work he does on that 1602 miniseries. But kind of a similar feel to that. Um, obviously early in his uh, 90s phase. Um, but I still really like it. Uh, Georgie from Excalibur, and he's also on the show from time to time, had been reading some... Uh, well, no, they were talking about it on when they were covering the Phalanx Covenant as they introduced Generation X to their book, or to their podcast. Um, how he didn't think Hubert really held up. Um, I'm not going to make a passing opinion yet. I'll wait till I get to more of his X stuff. But this art and this graphic novel was really good. Um, and so you would think Peter David, Andy Kubert, that's like a assumed home run, right? And I just don't really like it. And as much as I like Peter David, because I really do, so far from the little kind of Here's here's a little run on the, the solo series and here's Wolverine in this book. Not super crazy about his Wolverine necessarily. Um anyway, I mean it's fine. Uh I'm gonna give Reign of Terra uh two out of six claws overall, kind of forgettable. Um so we do have a Wolverine kind of cameo in Avengers West Coast number sixty four. Now, this is guest starring Captain America. It's show and tell. Written by Terry Cavanaugh. Pencils by Chris Wozniak. Inks by Dan Bolanati. Letters by Jack Morelli. And colors by Bob Sharon. And the cover is by Chris Wozniak as well. And it's okay. Um, Human Torch has a hot butt. <laughs> but is very much in focus and is on fire. Um, it's uh, it's hot stuff. And then Captain America is uh, fighting the Human Torch. Um, I tell you what, not bad art necessarily. But Captain America, uh, I prefer a calf where his uh, cow wings are not gonna fly away. Like he could flap these bad boys and 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 helicopter his way out of here later. Huge. Sorry, they're huge. Um, and there's some other guy in the background with a glowing rock. We don't really know what he is or why the rock is glowing. At least not 
not from the cover. We'll find that out, obviously. Here's what we get in this story. Um, Captain America gets a video distress call from Rick Jones and traces it to Avengers West Coast headquarters. The 40s Human Torch says the message was only relayed through their server and finds and sends Cap coordinates to the Joker's amusement park. No, really, it's, it's the Joker's amusement park in the Marvel Universe. Um, <laughs> so uh, the Torch digs a little deeper after that and realizes the amusement park is also not the source of the, the data, and he sent Cap into a trap, potentially, so he flies off to help. Um, some kid is hacking, do some kind of general hacking with Sidorak power. He has part of the rock in the Sidorak gym, or maybe the whole thing. Not really sure. Um, in flight, Torchy reviews the Avengers files on the Juggernaut, including when he fought Wolverine and the X-Men back in, um, in the 70s. Um, anyway, Cap fights his way through an evil amusement park. Uh, Torch and Cap converge on the Marvel Wax Museum. The Great Lakes Avengers also show up and everyone else thinks everyone else is an evil wax dummy until they don't. The whole ruse was for the kid to try and steal Cap's shield, but Cap somehow figured it out and so he had switched his shield with the wax one, which humiliates the kid at show and tell. The kid does have the real Cinderac gem though, and ends with the assumption that he's going to kill his whole class. Yeah. <laughs> um, that last part doesn't necessarily sit very well in modern times with all the, the school violence we have and stuff. But um, anyway, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll chalk it up to a different kind of lighter outlook on that. But it really is a really dark ending because... We don't see anything happen. He's just, he's really mad. The kids are making fun of him because he brought this stupid wax shield when he said he had Captain America's real shield. And they're giving him a hard time. And he just kind of gets this evil look on his face and grabs the gem. And just a really ominous, like, I am going to take all of you out. And it's just a really dark, dark ending. This says to be continued elsewhere, which I'm guessing, you know, means... Maybe this kid will be involved the next time we see the gym and or the juggernaut and or whatever. Um, but as of right now, it just kind of ends in that weird place. Um, there's a couple of really funny things. Uh, there's there's a part where the hacker on page five is um, he's doing a sequence and he's like... Um, oh wait, no, it's page five in digital. Let me get back to the, the real page here. Oh, uh, so page four in the actual comic and we see the kid for the first time and the computer glow showing on his face and he's like perfect two two perfect and we see the the camera flips around to show him from the back watching the screen and it's a close-up of Cap's butt so uh, Captain America's butt as we all know and could have told this kid if he had just asked us is perfect two two perfect <laughs> And so, like I said, also, this amusement park is definitely the Joker. Like, hands down. It's a clown with white face and green hair. And it's going, ha ha, he he he, as Cap runs into the mouth of the tunnel of amusement park roller coaster thing. Um, it is definitely the Joker. Um, 
So Wolverine is on file. He's also in the Wax Museum. So, um, that's cool. Uh, the story is okay. Um, other than Cap's head wings, the art is pretty good. Um, yeah, I would give West Coast Avengers 64, it's three out of six squads. It's not great, but it's fun enough. Um, yeah, yeah, I think three out of six is appropriate. So, next up, the treat you've been waiting for. I was hoping to get to it faster than this. I tried to move kind of quickly through this, but this was the, like the, the most natural place to stick it. So, Mr. John Wilson has agreed to do me a huge favor. And, of course, we're talking about the John Wilson from podcasts such as Make Ours Marvel, Super Silly Sentai, All the Pouches, other stuff. <laughs> I know he has a Transformers thing in the work. I know he's often a guest on Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast and and has had some other kind of guest appearances lately as well. So um yeah, John Wilson podcaster extraordinaire has agreed to cover Marvel superheroes 6 through 8 for me. Um Now this is a a kind of lost story. A Lost Tales type story um, that takes place with the Sentinels that flew into the sun at the end of the X-Men 60s run of original comics before they went to reprints. Now, I have a pretty staunch mission to try to capture all these Wolverine appearances. And I was going to get these and or at least try to read them online, which I couldn't do that either. There's no one apparently no one wants to reprint this story. <laughs> Not a lot of uh, reprint demand. But um, anyway, I ran into a pretty significant roadblock in that number eight, I think, or maybe number seven. One of the, one of these one of these three issues is also happens to be Squirrel, Squirrel Girl's first appearance. And you cannot get that bad boy for like under, I mean, the low end and not great shape was like $50, $60 and kind of goes up from there. Um... I love you guys. Want to read all the Wolverine stories I can. Was not willing to shell out that kind of money for... And I haven't listened to what John has to say yet. So he may he may really like it. I don't know. But it's not a very well-lauded story. Um, so it just didn't... I just wasn't going to pony up the cash for it. But he luckily had them. Or has a version of them somewhere. Um... And so he read them for us and is going to talk to him about it. So um, we're gonna, I'm going to go with you guys, take a journey with you guys. As of right this second, when I'm saying this, I have not listened to it yet. So we're going to we're going to go listen to that together, and then come back and finish out the episode. So, all right, take it away, Mr. John Wilson. Marvel Superheroes Volume 2 is a quarterly book published between 1990 and 1993. It was oversized with each issue containing multiple stories and issues 6 through 8 running a trilogy of full-length X-Men chapters in addition to other backup material. Since it was quarterly, in addition to being numbered, each issue was also called a spring special or something like that. So issues 6, 7, and 8 were the summer, fall, and winter specials released on May 21st, August 13th, and November 12th, 1991, respectively. And I thought about, you know, giving a detailed issue-by-issue recap of every part of the story, but I realized that Wolverine's role is really pretty limited. 
He's only there as part of the team. He never really contributes anything significant to the plot. So just a quick rundown, I think, is a better choice. So here's the skinny. You know, and I know, and any X-Men historian knows, that Bolivar Trask created Sentinels way back in the Silver Age. And then his son, Larry Trask, teamed up with Judge Harrison Chalmers to create new Sentinels, the Mark IIs, which ended up flying off to the sun to destroy the source of all mutation. Then there was this Avengers story that came out during the time when the X-Men wasn't being published, and those Mark IIs come back with an expanded plan to destroy all humans and make a new humanity that can't mutate. But all the Sentinels turn on their leader because they decide that Sentinel number 2 has been mutated by the sun. And so they melt him down, and they self-destruct, and one of them kills Trask Jr. when it falls over on top of him. So that's it. Got the backstory? Well, there's more backstory because now we get to the backstory that's actually part of this story at hand and all the events that set it in motion. And that is where the daughter of that judge, Dr. Cynthia Chalmers, is an archaeologist who's fascinated by the Sentinels. But her dad won't help her build one. Fancy that. So she gets an unlicensed team to help her dig up the dead Mark II Sentinels. But then they turn on her and tie her up when they find the robots because they want to sell the robots for parts. Well, in a coincidence that you only find in comic books, the Sentinels have just at that very moment finished a self-repair routine, and they wake up and kill everyone, except Dr. Chalmers, because she's already tied up by the, by the uh, now-dead um, people. And so they fly off because they're going to go study some solar flares and hatch a new plan to sterilize all mankind. And at a solar observatory, they kill all the scientists and build a machine that requires gamma power to catalyze the reaction with a solar flare. They need some gamma power and the Hulk is too hard to capture. So they kidnap the Abomination and Doc Samson. Now, these attacks attract the attention of the X-Men. Dun-dun-dun. Now, this is all happening back during the time when the X-Men were believed dead, and they were living in Australia. Not the crazy, whacked-out Australia from the Max, just, you know, normal crazy, whacked-out Australia. And this happens to be the same country where the Sentinels were uncovered and where they have now built their solar flare machine, so it's all geographically inconvenient. The X-Men follow the breadcrumbs from the Abomination and Doc Samson abductions, and they find the excavated site where the Sentinels were discovered, and there is Dr. Chalmers all tied up. And that's when she fills them in on all the backstory that you now know. Storm learns about a solar observatory's announcement of upcoming solar flares, and she believes it too much of a coincidence because she doesn't realize she's in a comic book. So she investigates, and she gets captured alongside the two gamma-powered captives. But she breaks free. And in breaking free, she enables Doc Samson to break free. And the X-Men arrive, and they attack the Sentinels, and they win! Hooray! Except that after they leave, the Abomination wakes up and terrorizes Dr. Chalmers. But Chalmers turns out, has been lying this whole time. She secretly wants the X-Men dead. She has the blueprints to build new Mark IIs, and she wants Abomination's help rebuilding one that she will then reprogram to kill the X-Men. Oh yeah, and also, she's dying of cancer. So this is like her end-of-life mission here. And after she's done, Abomination can have the Sentinel for his own purposes. So Abomination, because you remember he's actually secretly scientist Emil Blonsky, he agrees. And they build a modified Mark II Sentinel. Dr. Chalmers hooks up her brain to a control helmet, but there's a big surge. And she collapses. 
The Sentinel, though, does come to life, and it returns to its original plan of human sterilization. The X-Men had returned to base. They thought everything was hunky-dory. It was the end of the story. But no, they are now invaded by a Sentinel who captures Rogue to use for its machine. Because evidently, the logic is Rogue will absorb Abomination's gamma power. So that makes two gamma-powered people, which will make the machine work because Doc Samson, you know, left the story after the first victory earlier. So the Sentinel is successful. It activates its machine, but Storm is able to use her weather powers to counteract the solar flare's radiation and keep the Earth safe. Hooray! However, that is when something weird happens. Thinking that its programming to sterilize humanity has been achieved, the Sentinel goes dark for just a moment, and then reactivates. The Sentinel now houses the mind of Dr. Chalmers. You see, she had been lying the whole time when she was pretending to be evil. She only did that to secure the Abomination's help. Her goal this entire time has been to get a Sentinel body to continue living in since her own body was dying of cancer. And earlier on, when she put on the helmet, she transferred her mind. There was just a problem when the original programming took over. So that has now worked itself out. But now that she's here and she realizes that something else weird and electronic could happen and she could lose control again at some point and also realizing that Sentinels have committed like really huge crimes that must be paid for, she launches herself off the earth and flies toward the sun and thus endeth the story. So other than a couple of contrived plot directions and a weird structure, because like everyone end, uh, everyone wins at the end of the second part. But then, like, Chalmers is revealed to be evil as a cliffhanger to go into the third part. And they had to, like, bring everything back together to make a whole other fight. And then turns out that her whole reveal of being evil was actually revealed to not be evil. Anyway, other than that weird structure, this was a pretty decent story. It feels very Bronze Age. There's not a lot of consequence. But it does take advantage of some past continuity and follow up on it in what I thought were some cool ways. Sadly, Wolverine is hardly in it, and he's not at his best. Um, he's weirdly sarcastic, like not naturally sarcastic, like mean sarcastic in weird ways. Um, and he doesn't really want to be helpful. He doesn't really want to go contribute to the team and the mission. Uh, he talks to some of the female characters, and sometimes he's a little bit too charming in a way that's a little bit more creepy than endearing. So, I mean, it's not like the, all of his moments are bad. But there weren't very many moments, and so the ones that are bad kind of, you know, leave a bad taste. Anyways, overall, um, I would give the story as a whole three out of six Mark II Sentinel carcasses. As a Sentinel X-Men story, it's probably worth reading if you can track down the issues for not too much money. As a Wolverine story, I would, I, I would not say this is worth pursuing. And now, back to Jason in the studio. Oh, oh, wait, can I do plugs? Because um, if, if not, you can just cut this part off. But but um, I can be found every Friday on Make Ours Marvel, talking about early Marvel comics with my friend Mike Kaiser. I am also doing a commentary podcast on Japanese superheroes every Saturday morning with my son over at Super Silly Sentai. If you like Power Rangers, this is the 1975 direct precursor to those. And the first of every month, I drop several episodes as part of my journey through the early years of Image Comics over at All the Pouches and Image Comics podcast. Those can be found on Twitter at 
at MakeOursMarvel, at SillySentai, or at all the pouches, or on the internet at MakeOursMarvel.com and JohnReadsComics.com. This is John Wilson. Thanks for having me on, Jason. For real now, you get to talk. Bye. All right, all right, all right. Thank you so much, John. And of course, you can plug yourself. You can always plug yourself. Hey, go plug yourself. When I think about you, I'll plug myself. (laughs) Anyway, so first things first. Thank you very much to Mr. John Wilson for providing that very entertaining and informative uh, little section on Marvel Superhero 6 through 8. That was pretty awesome. Hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did. Second of all, Yes, definitely go, if you're not already, and I'm just going to assume that you are, but for maybe that one person that has not gotten on the John Wilson podcasting bandwagon, go do it now. Go check out one of his shows. Go check out all of his shows. Go wait for his upcoming shows. Um, It's all there. So, yeah, definitely go check that out. All his stuff is really, really wonderful. He's been a uh, a podcasting... um, hero of mine for a long time. One of the one of the first comic book podcasters I ever really started listening to um, a long time ago. So always glad to, to have him on and you know, he let him plug his shows and I can plug his shows and just all, a lot of plugging going on. But um anyway, so a couple a couple interesting thoughts. I did not know that about the Sentinels. I so alright, let me back that up. So I knew that these, just from reading online and stuff, uh, and a couple of very, very brief summaries I was able to find, there's really not a, a whole lot out there about these this X-Men story that people really care to write about. But um, what I was able to find, I knew that it was the, the same Sentinels that Roy Thomas flew into the sun at the end of the 60s X-Men run. I did not know that they had already come back before. Um, and speaking of Roy Thomas, uh, who wrote the, the X-Men story and then wrote this story, but also the Avengers story that John was referring to is, is Roy Thomas. Um, and I never, I never knew about that, that that happened. So I did look briefly, um, it looks like it's in the early 100s. Um, I'm currently on, as this is being recorded, on issue 84 of the Avengers in my Marvel 70s read-through. So I should be getting there before too long. Looking forward to reading that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's very interesting that the idea of trying to use Rogue to, to be a Gamma substitute. Um, and yeah, and just, it sounds like it maybe was a little bit better than some people give it credit for, but not awesome. Maybe just kind of somewhere in that in that middle ground but uh yeah so since i can't read it uh john score is going to be the official the podcast that goes nicked rating so three out of six for that um and again thank you john um and everybody go listen to him at uh make ours marvel all the pouches and image and image comics pocket let me start that over all the pouches and image good grief I try to say image comics. I want to make it one word. I like imix. <laughs> and that's dumb, but I do it anyway. Um, an image comics podcast is all the pouches. Uh, Super Silly Sentai. Uh, he's got some Transformers stuff in the works. 
Um, saw that he was reading some G.I. Joe to prep for that. I've always wanted, you know, Cameron and I used to always talk about doing a G.I. Joe podcast. Of course, now it's other people have beat us to the, the punch, but or beat us to the Kung Fu grip, however you want to say it. But maybe someday we'll do it anyway because, hey, we're awesome. <laughs> and there's always room for more. If there's anything I've ever learned about podcasting, always room for more. But, uh, yeah, so once again, thanks, John. Uh, you people go check him out. Uh, we have a couple other things. Speaking of Marvel superheroes and Lost Tales, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. And this is ahead in our timeline, but the story's old. So it's okay. I can kind of stick it wherever I want. But in 1992, Marvel Superheroes number 10 came out. And this has a couple of things. It's got a, a story about the Vision and the Scarlet Witch, with, by the way, by Mike Mignola. It's pretty rad. Um, we have a Namor story, which fits in his early 90s series that John Byrne was doing. This is not by John Byrne, but it says it's right in the middle of that, that early part of that series. And then we have a Miss Marvel Sabretooth story. So we have an old Sabretooth appearance that was done, but never released. So this story was supposed to be Miss Marvel number 24. Because uh, Miss Marvel was intended to be a 25 issue, or well, I mean, once they knew they were wrapping up, uh, Chris Claremont's Miss Marvel series was going to go 25 issues and kind of lead her into the Avengers and kind of let her just kind of chill there for a little bit. But I guess something happened. I, you know, I didn't do a whole lot of research because I'm really more into this for the Sabretooth story. I mean, here for the podcast, but I mean, for whatever reason, 25. Four and 25 never came out. Um, but we have this story with, with Sabretooth um, in it, which would have been like kind of smack dab in the middle of like 1979. Um, leading, so all this is kind of leading up to Avengers Annual 10, where, of course, uh, Rogue infamously, famously, whatever, uh, steals Ms. Marvel's powers and personality. Um, but this is kind of the, the lead-up to that. Uh, so this is by Chris Claremont, uh, artist Mike Vosberg, letters Jim Novak, and Heidi Goodhue does the colors. Oh, that's a, that's a good name for a colorist. Goodhue. The hue of this color is very good. Um... Yeah, so anyway, there's that. Um, yeah, so we have a, a cover, a different cover, uh, by someone named Brassfield. And I don't like it. Um, it's Miss Marvel and Sabretooth kind of wrestling, grappling, if you will. Uh, in black and white, yeah, Vision and Scarlet Witch off to the side. And Namor standing with his arms crossed. Probably the best part of the cover. Also a, a black and white little figurine. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of bad 90s art. And not like gratuitous 90s art. But it's not very good 90s art. Miss um, Marvel and Sabretooth. Miss Marvel is kind of terrible. And it's really unfortunate because if you get into here. They have the, the unpublished cover of Miss Marvel 24. 
by Dave Cockrum, and that is really cool. Um, we have Sabretooth diving after Miss Marvel off of a subway platform right in front of a speeding train, um, and people in the background going, <gasps> just gasping um, at the fate of our characters, and it's, I mean, obviously I'm a, a Dave Cockrum fan, if you remember the old, old flashback episodes, you remember that, but, um, man, it's just, it's a cool cover. It's got nice action, and the art's good. Um, I really probably should have just either have just used this as the cover. Since it's never been published, it's not like they're reprinting, right? Uh, they could have used this as a cover for Marvel Super Heroes 10, um, or maybe had like a, a, a modern, I say modern, like 92 artist recreate it, like, like a superstar artist. I mean... One thing I didn't mention about uh, the Marvel Superhero 6 or 8 that John just covered was the covers on those are great. Uh, there's the Art Adams cover, there's an Eric Larson cover that's just phenomenal. Um, so I don't know why they, they between, <laughs> between number 8 and number 10, they let the cover art slip quite a bit. But um, man, like, like at McFarlane or even... I don't know. I mean, Jim Lee, like, redoing this Miss Marvel 24 cover could have been a really cool cover to this. But I guess that's neither here nor there. I would just say if you ever get this and have a chance to read it, you know, just pretend that you just skip to the page 60 where the Miss Marvel story starts and look at that cover and just say, hey, that's the cover. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. So what happens in this story is basically... Um, so like I said, back before Avengers Annual 10, Ms. Marvel is training at the Avengers headquarters with Iron Man. Uh, the Canadian government is extraditing Sabretooth from S.H.I.E.L.D. custody with the hopes to send him to reclaim Weapon X. Oh, and oh yeah, by the way, they also want S.H.I.E.L.D. to train him. Sabretooth, that is. Which uh, pisses Deputy Director Sitwell right off. That's Jasper Sitwell from the 60s stories, I guess, at this point. is Deputy Director of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's pretty cool. Um, while Carol has lunch with friends, Sabretooth crashes a S.H.I.E.L.D. truck into the window and escapes into the sewer. So he was being transferred. He obviously got loose because he's Sabretooth. Um, probably murdered the drivers. They don't say for sure. But that van crashes into... The window in the restaurant and or coffee shop where Carol and her friends are at. And Sabretooth gets away into the sewers. Miss Marvel goes after him. They have a pretty good all by brief fight. Until Miss Marvel KOs him with a series of rapid fist punches. There's a like rapid fire like almost Superman style. Where it's like, like almost these like jackhammer punches, right? Um, so that knocks Sabretooth out and I'm okay with that. Um... And she calls S.H.I.E.L.D. to collect him. So, um, there's a part, this, this first part with Carol and, and Tony. Uh, Tony comes off as a pretty big douche. Um, he's really like, I don't know, this is really the business cut out for a woman. Which, does, I don't know, I mean... My early Iron Man reading is limited to the 60s and beginning of 1970s stuff that I've read. 
I don't remember him being like. I mean, obviously he's he has the the Silver Age superhero quirks, right? Some some personality quirks, but I don't remember him being outright sexist. Um, but he is here pretty badly. Um, and then when Women's Marvel bites his head off, she's kind of like, oh, he's, she's flirting. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, Tony. Um, but then there's one part that I thought was really kind of funny where Miss Marvel calls him a closet chauvinist. I was like, ah, he's he's out of the closet. He's being straight sexist in this comic book. Um, yeah, that was funny. But also, I thought it was really cool, and I'm assuming this, I haven't read a whole lot of this Miss Marvel original series I'm assuming this is pretty much in step with it, but um, the girl power is on full display, which I thought was really cool for, like, you know, a 70s comic. Um, that's pretty rad. Um, I will say, though, the art kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, it's almost like a 90s-level risque uh, like with Carol in the shower and only being covered by steam and her folded arms. Um, and, of course, she stays in her towel for a while. Um, at one point, even, like, drops the towel. You see it from behind in the towel and just covers her, her butt. Um, I don't know. That seemed like something you might see more in the late 80s, 90s. So I was a little surprised to see it uh, in, a, in some 79 artwork. Um... I gotta say, I I can't really say for sure where I've read his art before, but in my mind, I was thinking before I read this, oh yeah, I like Mike Vosberg. I'm not sure that I do. Um, this art's pretty rough. And, I don't know, maybe it was done quickly and not really finished. Like, maybe it was finished later. I don't know the whole story on this issue since it wasn't. No published back when it was originally conceived, so there could be some some go back and touches up. But there's some parts where Carol's face looks really weird. Um, faces in general look kind of weird. I will say the art picks up when we get the subway fight. Like the action is actually pretty decent, um, and the fighting stuff is pretty good. So that art's a lot better. Um, the the more just kind of doing stuff art it was not not as good um and there is a cliffhanger she has like a mental i guess part of her creed power at this time is to have like telepathic flashes so she has like this flash of like a skull and a shadowy figure that's going to be mystique so i kind of want to get I, i'm guessing it says we're going to see it here so i'm guessing marvel superheroes 11 probably has Miss Marvel number 25 in it. I kind of want to track that down and read this story because I know Avengers Annual 10 kind of references this interaction with Mystique that I, I just assumed was never actually a comic book. But I'm guessing it was intended to be Miss Marvel 25 and just never came out. And that was kind of intended to lead more or less directly into Avengers Annual 10, maybe? I don't know, maybe possibly. Um, but anyway, uh, there's some stuff here to like. Visually, not as much, but the story's pretty fun. Um, I don't know. I guess I'd give it a three out of six claws. 
Um, I mean, Sabretooth is just kind of typical 70s Sabretooth. He calls him as Marvel or Frail. Um, he's nasty for the sake of being nasty. He puts up a good fight. I will say, maybe could have used a little more of their fight. I mean, and also, you gotta say, when, when everything old is new again, I wouldn't mind seeing a modern day fight between Carol and Sabretooth. I, Carol may be just too powered up <laughs> to fight Sabretooth anymore. I mean, she could probably just atomize him. Um, but, I don't know. I mean, the conceit is, is interesting, is good. I really think if the art was better, or, or a different artist, or, you know, if it was, like, sketched out and then finished later, maybe if it was just done back when it was done, I can easily see some enhanced visuals pushing this to a 4 out of 6 pretty easily. I mean, the story's there. I just I wasn't into really the, the visualization. And that's, you know, at least half a comic book, right? So, um, yeah. So, but anyway, I uh, thought that was fun. Kind of a fun little little lost tale of Sabretooth um, from, from the late 70s. So, it was pretty cool to, to see that and get to read that. Um, Alright, so last but not least for this kind of odds and ends episode, we have a flash forward in Excalibur number 26. Now a little shout out to my friends Georgie and Dan over at Excalibur's. Uh, they're a ways off from this. They kind of just kicked off the cross time caper, so they're not going to get to number 26 for a while, but I you know, wouldn't be interested in and hearing their thoughts when the time comes. Um, so this is the times they are in changing with an asterisk, which I thought was going to be like, you know, see the Bob Dylan song. But no, just an asterisk saying that this, speaking of cross time caper, this is actually another tale from yet, or yet another tale from before the cross time caper. So that Excalibur gets out of the cross time caper and they don't really move ahead right away. They kind of stay in this time. I don't know what they're waiting for. It definitely feels like they're killing time. And this issue feels like it's killing time. But anyways, written by Michael Wiggins. Art by Ron Lim. Inked by Joe Rubenstein. Letters by Augustine Moss. And colors by Glennis Oliver. Um, the cover looks like it's by, yeah, it's by Ron Lim as well. And we have Captain Britain in a white t-shirt and jeans and he has the phoenix power it looks like and rachel kneeling in front of him and then off to the side we have kitty pride in her days of future past jumpsuit we have regular captain britain in his uniform we have jean gray as the black queen and we have nightcrawler with the mustache in a weird suit so that's what we have. Um, so yeah, so in this, basically what happens is um, by re replacing Captain Britain, Mastermind has infiltrated Excalibur. He dumped Megan as Captain Britain uh, into that relationship who is being comforted by Nightcrawler. Mastermind then makes Rachel and Kitty see days of future past Franklin Richards. Rachel goes to make out with her dead future boyfriend 
allowing Mastermind to siphon some Phoenix Force. Kitty has a real Days of Future Past memory return and remembers that Franklin died, so this can't be a version sent back in time from a different point. It must be a fake. <laughs> She's, she hasn't read enough X-Men comics, so I'll tell you what. Um, so Excalibur helped wake Rachel up, who uses her full Phoenix power to subjugate Mastermind, trapping him in a mental loop where he becomes one with the cosmos and the Phoenix Force, which is what he was after. So he, he gets stuck in this, this loop, this dream where he, he got his heart's desire, he won, and so he's happy to just stay there and not ever try to break out of the loop. Um, so what does this have to do with the podcast that goes snitch, you ask? Well, in the future flashbacks of the days of future past, oh, not old man Logan, that's a different thing now, but gray templed Wolverine is there. Um, you know, I wasn't sure with this story, um, are they just ignoring days of future present where Rachel meets a version from Franklin that really did come back in time and was, she was surprised to see him alive and they kind of have, you know, a, a rekindling of the relationship before that story ends. It's like, this story is like, uh, no, 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 no. We don't want that. We want this. We want this crappy mastermind story. And I feel like trapping them in a world where they get their wish has not only been done before, hasn't it been done to Mastermind before? Didn't Gene do something similar to Mastermind? Haven't he, hasn't he been trapped in a like, oh, the only way to defeat him is to make his mental powers like trap him. So I don't know. I feel like it felt really tropey and in a bad way, in a not fun way. Um, so I don't know. So, you know, <laughs> Honestly, I'm most interested in how this affects Kurt and Megan. You know, because at the end of this, the real, once Mastermind is discovered, they find out that this whole time, when, when Captain Britain's been acting like a big old jerk, that it wasn't him, it was, it's been Mastermind for a few issues now, and the real Captain Britain was off taking a nap on Muir Island. Um, so now that he's back, and he hasn't been treating Megan like a jerk, and he hasn't dumped Megan... Like, what does this do for, for Kurt and Megan? Because Kurt was very much like, oh, I want to make a move, but I, she's on the rebound. It's too soon. And now Megan's got to be, like, super conflicted because the boyfriend that was giving her all the trouble wasn't her real boyfriend. It was a fake boyfriend. And now her her boyfriend's back, and Kurt's going to be in trouble. Um, and I just don't know. Um, that, that, to me, is the most interesting part about this story. Um is how that's going to play out. So I guess we'll, we'll see in the coming issues of Excalibur how that works. Um, so the art um, is not Lim's best, but it's still pretty good, especially his Phoenix stuff is, is really nice. You know, and, and Lim 89 to 90 is very, very prolific. Like, super prolific. He's doing a lot. Um, he's doing Silver Surfer with Jim Starlin. He's doing... Um, a lot of Captain America with uh, Mark Gruenwald, and he's been doing some a decent number of fill-in issues in Excalibur. Um, and I gotta say, of those three projects, um, 
you know, if the Excaliburs are filling work, it definitely is the one he's giving, it seems like he's giving the least attention to, or at least effort into. I mean, I mean, come on, if you're drawing, we'll, we'll say, since he's doing Excalibur part-time, two and a half books, I mean, that's, oh, not everything can get your A-game. It's just not possible. Um, so, um, yeah, I would, if I, let's see, if I had to rank them, I would say, so his Silver Surfer work at this time is phenomenal. It is so, so good. It makes you hurt. Um, his Captain America work is pretty great. It's not quite as awesome as, I'd put it like, a little, a smidge below the Silver Surfer stuff, and then a little bit of a step down for most of his Excalibur work. The, it's still good. I like it. Uh, I think the, the Excalibur's guys have been a little hard on it. I, I wouldn't go maybe as far as them, but compared to his other body work, definitely not his best. Um, this story is pretty meh. I wasn't really into it at all, like I said, other than the, the love triangle potential. So, um, I'm going to give it Scalver 26, 2 out of 6 claws. 2 out of 6 for 26. So, there you go. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to John Wilson for coming on. And again, please go check out all his podcasts. Uh, visit johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. That's also his personal Twitter handle. And then you can find uh, his all his other Twitter handles and, and podcasts as well. Again, that's uh, Make Ours Marvel, All the Pouches, and Image Comics Podcast, Super Silly Sentai. Um, he's also uh, a regular guest on uh, Resurrections. Or he, I think he still is doing that. He may, they may be taking, I don't know if he's doing the Infinity Countdown stuff that Al just put out or not. I will be listening to those shortly, and I guess I can let you know. But, um, or, you know, you can go find out yourself. <laughs> so, yeah, there's another plug. Go listen to Al. Uh, he's been on the show a few times at uh, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. So, there you go. But for this podcast, the Wolverine podcast that goes snicked, uh, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at snickcast. Show notes and stuff are at snickcast.podbean.com. And... So yeah, um, I don't know what will be next. The next flashback episode, you know, I mentioned that it was important to note that Wolverine didn't see Cable, actual Cable, in Reign of Terror because the next flashback episode is going to be where Wolverine and Cable meet, cross paths for the first time, at least first published time. Mm-hmm. What's that about, you asshole? Tune in next time and find out. Probably the next actual episode episodes will be. Man, we got a ton of comics in April, and then of course also our X Men comics, Uncanny Catch Up with uh, Georgie and Dan. So, all that is coming at you pretty soon. But until then, hugs and snicks, everybody. Bye bye, and snacked. <laughs>